Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 15. And let's trust the Lord that He'll continue to bless us in our worship of Him this morning. I appreciate all the prayers that have gone before in the back room here in the pulpit. May the Lord have mercy upon us. He is worthy of the best we can give Him. And every word of God is pure. And man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And today we shall finish the 15th chapter of Romans by looking at the last nine verses of the chapter. I read them to you, beginning at verse 25. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints." that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Lord, for giving us Romans chapter 15. These verses that run from verse 15 to 33 in this chapter are of a different sort than we've dealt with in the epistle to the Romans, but I hope that we can draw some lessons for our lives out of these nine verses that will instruct us in the way of the Lord more perfectly and bring honor and glory to Him and the Lord Jesus Christ and cause us to yet be thankful for the great transition that took place when the heavens and the earth were shaken and the Old Testament kingdom went away and the gospel was taken from the Jews and sent to the Gentiles. And here our apostle is showing his great wisdom in trying to unite those two divided factions by sending cash from the one to the other and hoping that they would receive it because there was deep animosity in the Jews against the Gentiles, even for a gift like this. And so I hope you can understand all that is here and I hope that I can share some things with you. Let's look at verse 25. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. The reason that but is there and now is there is because the apostle has been explaining in the previous few verses as to why it had been so long in him not visiting the great church in Rome. When your church is in the capital of the Roman Empire, you would think that the apostle might have had time to come and visit you, but he hadn't yet. And he had explained that and had shown that his ministry of preaching the gospel to those that had not heard it had taken him roundabout ways all the way to Illyricum, or the old state of Yugoslavia, or the current state of Bosnia and Croatia. And so he hadn't had time to get to Rome, but he was planning to get there. But he had to make a stop. He couldn't just come from Sencria in Achaia 
to Rome, where he wrote this epistle from, he was going to go to Jerusalem. And so we have the words, but now I go unto Jerusalem. When you look in your the Acts of the Apostles, and if you want to turn there very quickly with me, Acts chapter 19 and verse 21, when uh, he is at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul is recorded by Luke as saying, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem. So there's his next stop. He needs to get to Jerusalem because he's carrying a great gift from many Gentile churches. And he says here in Acts chapter 19 and verse 21, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So if you're reading the Acts of the Apostles, which is the historical record of what the Apostles did, you can find Romans chapter 15 there in Acts 19 as being approximately the same time when he had purposed in his heart to go to Rome, but he had to go to Jerusalem first. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. And the ministry is not going to be to preach there so much as it is to carry a large gift from the churches. And he goes on and explains that in verse 26. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them. Let's just look at those words for a moment. It pleased those of Macedonia and Achaia. The nation of Greece is divided into two halves. The northern half is Macedonia. The southern half is Achaia. In the northern half, you had churches like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. In the southern half, you had churches like Athens and Corinth. But that's what those two are. Those are two parts of Greece. We're not in Turkey or Asia, where the seven churches of Asia were, or the seven, or the churches of Galatia, which was the middle part of Turkey. We're here in Greece. And so he refers to these that are nearby to him that he could personally speak and address and solicit their funds. It hath pleased them. In your Bibles, in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, the Word of God says to us, Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So let me for a moment address you today about giving cheerfully, because it says here in Romans fifteen twenty six, it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia. Now these Gentiles were not going to be giving their funds to other Gentiles. These Gentiles were going to be giving their funds to Jews. And yet it pleased them to take this collection. And so I want to remind you about the wonderful thing described in the Bible as a cheerful giver. We don't want to do it grudgingly and we don't want to do it of necessity. The warning in that verse of 2 Corinthians 9-7 is against giving grudgingly or miserly, wishing you did not have to give. You know, when you grudge it, I don't really want to give. There isn't really a need for it. The cause isn't valuable enough. I just don't feel like it, grudgingly. But yet, they would go ahead and, you know, people will put money in an offering, or they'll put money in a box, even though their heart isn't in the matter. But the Lord loveth a cheerful giver. And it's a horrible thing when you look at the dots of Christian giving. And I'll do that in just a moment. There are dots connected with Christian giving. If you give, and you give liberally, and you give faithfully, and you give cheerfully, the Lord will bless. 
But if you don't give cheerfully, you lose your blessing. And so why would you give not cheerfully? The only way you should give is cheerfully. You say, well, I'll just stop giving then and wait until I'm cheerful. The Bible doesn't say to do that at all. The Bible tells you to get cheerful and do your giving. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. The warning is against out of necessity. Like you have to do it. Okay, there's this need, and I have to do it. Paul's going to be asking me about it. My wife's going to be asking me about it. The deacons of the church may ask me about it. Out of necessity. No, the Lord doesn't want it out of necessity. The Lord doesn't want it out of grudgingness or miserliness. The Lord wants it out of a cheerful heart. The Lord wants it from a heart like David, who wanted to do something exceeding magnificent for the Lord, who wanted to build him a palace that was fit for God, not for man. It should be the easiest check for you to write all month long. And that is to the Lord. It's the easiest money to spend for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God to us. Your chosen and favorite use of money should be the kingdom of heaven and its needs. Why would you want to give it anywhere else? You say, well, I'd like to enjoy some of it myself. Are you kidding me? Do you really think that way? Do you really think that way? You'd rather use it yourself than have the Lord of glory use it? Have fun dealing with Him in your life and when you meet Him. And I speak as a fool when I say that. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. We want to be like those that left the city of Babylon, only 45,000 of them without very much, and came all the way back to Jerusalem to build the Lord a house for His name by the order of Cyrus, king of Persia. Let me show you some dots. Proverbs chapter 3, very quickly. We'll combine our two themes for today. Proverbs chapter 3, there are dots connected to giving. You know, there's two kinds of dots that I want to leave you with you by the sermon titled, Connect the Dots. There's God's dots that we ought to look at and see. Look what the Lord did. What hath God wrought? Amen. I'm still, I'm still worked up about four prophecies of one named Balaam. Just hold on. I have to go away for a week, but when I come back and we're through Romans 15, we may have a little excursion into Numbers chapter 22 through 24 and see what Balaam had to do when God gets a hold of a man, even a faithless man. What hath God wrought? Wonderful words. But look at Proverbs chapter 3. These are some rules for financial success in your life. These are more important than anything that you can learn at Harvard Business School. And I give them to you from the Word of God. Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with thy substance. When you give, you're honoring God. That's a whole lot more than singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. It's putting your money where your mouth is. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. When God gives you increase, when God gives you money, when God gives you assets, you give Him the first fruits. You don't give Him what's left over. The average Christian today gives what's left over. They drop a little bit in after they have spent on themselves all week long. But we give the first fruits off the top as a man purposeth in his heart. He picks a percentage and he gives that to God first off of gross pay. We've been over this so many times, I need not repeat myself. But here are the dots. Verse 10. So, the word so means in accordance with what's been described. If you give like verse 9, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Now those are dots. 
And you can connect the dots. Give to the Lord. Give liberally. Don't give grudgingly. Don't give of necessity. And by all means, give cheerfully. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia. And the Lord will bless you. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Okay, I thought you might say that. So Luke chapter 6 will help us out in the New Testament. Luke chapter 6. There are other places that we could turn, but we'll end up spending too much time on giving. We're just going to take the Word of God as the Lord brings things to us as we proceed through a chapter of the Bible expositionally. Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Give. Give. That's an imperative verb, single word, telling you what you ought to do. Give. And it shall be given unto you. God's going to give back. Good measure. It's going to be a full measuring capacity of whatever He gives. Pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. You are going to be blessed in your dealings with other men in this world because you have given. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. You know, when you get that big, and I've mentioned this so many times, but for those that are want to understand this verse, you get that box of cereal and it's sitting on your breakfast table and it has that little note on the side that contents may have settled during transportation. And so you peek in the top and <laughs> there's only cereal filling two-thirds of the box. But here's what the Lord is saying. I'll give you a full measure. There is a pound of cereal in there if you bought a 16-ounce box of Cheerios. You can count on that in America because we live in a God-blessed nation. There's 16 ounces of Cheerios in that box, but it's only filling two-thirds of the box. So here's what the Lord says. I'll give you a good measure. I'll give you 16 ounces, Luke 6.38, but then I'm going to press it down. Instead of just transporting it and having it vibrate a little, I'm going to jump on the box. And I'm going to press it down. Then I'm going to shake it together. That's like being transported in the back of a semi. And then I'm going to keep pouring it in until it runs over the top. That's what the Bible says. And that's what men who have given know is true. And that's why there is a man whose legacy in this country is great. His name is R.G. Letourneau. They said, how in the world can you be rich when you gave 90% to God and only kept 10% for yourself? He said, well, I just shoveled it out to God and he just kept shoveling it back. And he had a bigger shovel. You can go home and look up R.G. Letourneau. It's a wonderful story. Letourneau University in Texas still exists as a legacy to his name. It's a Christian college for engineers. He had 289 patents in our country for the heaviest and largest earth-moving equipment you have ever imagined. Used heavily in World War II and after that, but he was a great giver. Back to Romans chapter 15 and verse 26. It hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia. And so we got a little lesson for us about giving cheerfully. I can't think of a better reason to get a transferable skill and to enhance your professional career slope so that it's going up, so that you can make more money, so that you can give more to the kingdom of heaven. That's the best reason to make money. Lord, help us to have the attitude that you love. See, I want the Lord to love all of you. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. If you're not a cheerful giver, the Lord doesn't love you in a practical way. And if the Lord doesn't love you in a practical way, you're not going to be blessed. He's going to blow against you like Haggai chapter 1 in your reading last night. Right. 
Right. Now in this 26th verse, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution. <laughs> that certain contribution wasn't some vague giving. The apostle Paul had given order to all the churches of Greece and Turkey that they were to give in such a way for Jerusalem. And it's described in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. He told them who was going to get the money. He told them how to collect the money. And he told them when he would be coming by to pick up the money. And it's all, it's a certain contribution. Uh, he's very, he's very discreet about it right here. But it, it's his plan because he's going to accomplish a number of things. The poor are going to be blessed. Fruit is going to be sealed to the Gentiles of a serious nature because they're giving money to Jews. The Jews are going to be placated. You know what? Our brethren among the Gentiles, they are, they are good people. Apostle Paul. When a man's inspired by the Holy Spirit, there is so much wisdom to learn, and we don't have time to slow down and, and think about that more carefully of when you could put that into practice in your life. But the Apostle Paul was wise. Though, though he was not allowed to preach very much in Jerusalem, and though he was hardly ever there because they wanted to kill him, because he's about to ask for prayer, would you please pray that I'll be delivered from those in Judea that don't believe? He was scared to go there. He's already been told that you're going to get yourself into trouble when you get to Jerusalem by a prophet of God that met him with his purpose to go to Jerusalem. And yet he knew that there could be great good accomplished if the Gentiles would send money all the way across the Mediterranean to those poor saints in Jerusalem. If the poor saints in Jerusalem would receive it. He's going to ask prayer for that because he's just as concerned about that. We don't want none of that Gentile money. Is that is a human being capable of something like that? Easily. Easily. Okay. A certain contribution. Yes, Paul, thank you for telling us to look elsewhere and we can find out about it in, in Acts and in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. There are two whole chapters in 2 Corinthians all about this gift. Two whole chapters. For poor saints which are at Jerusalem, Christian charity and giving have rules and limits that should be remembered and taught often. If you go to the world at all, or you hear from them where you ought to be giving and to whom you ought to be giving, you're going to be placed under a burden that can't be borne. Because they are going to look at all the world's poor and think that Christians have an obligation toward all the world's poor, but Christians don't have such an obligation, and it is not taught at all in either testament. When the Bible says that Judas carried the bag, and that Jesus referred to what was in that bag as something for the poor, where was Jesus traveling and circling in those days? Was he in Egypt, the Hittite Empire of Turkey, or was he in Syria? Oh, he was in Israel, the church of God. He had a bag for the poor that were in the church of God. You know, when you turn your television on, you see these money-begging televangelists that are trying to make you feel good about yourself and make you feel better about them by showing you pictures of flies crawling across eyeballs in the sedan somewhere, God has not told you anywhere in His book of 31,101 verses that those are your obligation. It's poor saints. Amen. And so it tells us that here, the order of giving taught in the Bible that has been taught in this church before, and if you want a thorough, multi-paged, single-spaced outline on this subject, it is charity and the Haiti earthquake that occurred a few years ago when I expanded that study as 
about as far as it can be expanded, and it's available for you on our website for you to look at that. The giving order is this. First, your family. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8. If a man doesn't take care of his own, he's worse than an infidel and has denied the faith. If you have desolate, desperate widows that need to be supported, or aunts or uncles that need to be supported, it's your family first. Then it's your own church. Then it's other churches of the same faith. And then it's those people that God places in front of you in your ordinary course of business by an act of God. Turning on the television and finding the sedan is not an act of God. It's an act of folly. An act of God is you coming outside your house and finding a car broken down there and somebody that is poor with no money, can't call a wrecker, has no insurance, and doesn't know what to do and you take care of them and get them on their way again. The explanation of it is the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was on his way in ordinary course of business when he finds a wounded Jew in the ditch beside the road having been beset upon by thieves and he was bruised and wounded seriously. And so he stops, he binds up his wounds, puts them on his ass, takes them to an inn, gives a little bit of money to the innkeeper to take care of him and says, my next time traveling through these parts, if he stayed longer than what I've given you, I'll take care of that as well. It was emergency medical care. It wasn't a television. It wasn't toys for tots. He didn't give him a dump truck load of toys to take home to his kids. He got him the emergency... Listen. I love the Word of God. I love every single word of the Word of God. I don't care what anyone else thinks. I don't care how hard they might try to make me feel like I'm stingy because I'm going to give to the people of God. I'm going to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. I'm going to give to the poor saints in Greenville or anywhere else that the Lord shows us. This is a blessing from His Word to be able to understand these things. There is no collection or giving in either testament for the poor of the pagan nations around Israel. Or around the churches. Now listen to this. Paul and his companions. And this money transferring operation from Achaia and Macedonia and the churches of Galatia was pretty significant. When you read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul told them specific brethren that had been approved by all the churches to help him carry that money so that they could all know that it was going to get to Jerusalem safely. There wasn't going to be any embezzlement or misuse of funds. This is a major operation. But that group of men, in order to travel, they did not go into an airport at Sencria, where Paul was, and get in a plane and touch down in Jerusalem and have the poor saints there waiting for them with open arms. They had to travel by donkey, mule, horse, boat, ship, and foot in order to get all the way from Achaia to Jerusalem. And in that process of traveling, do you know how many poor they passed? Do you know how many orphanages they passed? Do you know how many widows they passed? Do you know how many beggars they passed? You say, well, if it would have been me, I'd have given the first beggar 1%, the second beggar 2%. I know. And before you got out of Sencria, you wouldn't have had any money left. I want you to think about it. They did not stop. They did not care. That is not the obligation God has put upon us. Do you want to hear some pleasant words? Let the dead bury the dead. Do you, let me alter that a little bit so that you can get the full in, in sense of those words. Let the dead feed the dead. If the dead are supposed to bury the dead, then the dead can feed the dead. And that is the pagans. Until God puts someone in a legitimate need right in your path. Right. Then we serve. 
and we are liberal, and we take care of them. Lord, thank you for your word. Do you understand that? Family, your own church, other churches of the same faith, and then those that God places in your ordinary course of business by an act of God. And what do you give those that uh, have an act of God? Only real needs are met. Food, shelter, clothing, or emergency medical care. Nothing else. No one needs a television, and no one needs a cell phone. No one needs an automobile. They need food, clothing, shelter, and emergency medical care if they're seriously wounded by an act of God. Thank you, Lord. Much more could be said than that. It's been said before. We want to go to verse 27. It hath pleased them verily. Verily means truthfully. It has truly, honestly pleased them. These churches were actually excited about giving. And I want to encourage you today to be excited about giving. It's the giving that works. I want God working on the behalf of every single one under the sound of my voice here and anywhere else in the world. Give cheerfully. Give excitedly. Give liberally. Give creatively. I'm just going to use R.G. Letourneau again as my illustration. The man who gave 90% and became rich. You know, the Lord mentions 10% as a tithe. That's your call. You know, how do you calculate your tithe? You know, there's all kinds of way to, ways to calculate your tithe. Do you tithe it on gross or net? Do you tie it on the off-pay stub benefits that you have from your employer? Do you calculate it after the tax benefits that you re- realize on your giving when you fill out your 1040? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We can go through that, and it's pretty ugly, isn't it? If you consider your taxes and find out that you are in a 30% marginal tax bracket and you give 10%, then really it's only costing you 7%. I'm just rounding off some numbers here. Yeah, and then you give it on net, which is only 80% of your gross. You're only giving 5.6%. And then you forget about the 401k and the other benefits you have. You know what you're down to? You're down to 4.8%. You come in here, you're grudging about giving 10%, and you're only giving 4.8%. Now listen, everyone here knows, if you think I'm preaching... This, for any other reason than it's in Romans 15, and it's for your profit, make sure you put every single cent in the big box over here that's for the general fund that I can't get a penny of. Make sure you do that. Because that's another way that I get to give. This is for the Lord's sake, and it's for your sake. When it says the Lord loveth a cheerful giver, I want the Lord to love all of you. And it pleased them, verily. Notice the wording of the Word of God. I don't think a single word's been wasted on us. Verily, truthfully, honestly, the the Philippians and the, the Corinthians were excited about giving. It pleased them, verily, and their debtors they are. Those Gentiles of Macedonia and Achaia are debtors to those poor Jewish saints in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty, that is the Gentiles' duty, is also to minister unto them in carnal things. The Gentiles got the religion of God from a certain group of people, from a certain nation. When Jesus Christ was on earth, this same chapter taught us that He was a minister of the circumcision. In verse 8, 
Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. The fathers of whom? What nation? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Jewish nation. The religion of God was contained within the Jewish nation. It was the church of God of the Old Testament. They only had the Word of God. To them only the Lord Jesus Christ came. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself said, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He did not preach, nor did His apostles preach to Gentiles. And He told them when He ascended up into heaven in Acts chapter 1, that their ministry should start at Jerusalem, and then proceed outward to Judea, then outward to Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth, like Greece and Turkey. And then, when you lived in northern Macedonia, near the border of Illyricum, and a preacher of the gospel came and shared the truth of Jehovah God and His Son Jesus Christ and the everlasting gospel of peace that was being preached on the earth, of what nationality, culture, and race was that man preaching to you? He was a Jew. The Gentiles benefited from the Jews, and so they were in debt to them to return their carnal things. While the Jews had preserved and kept the religion and worship of God, as far as God viewed the matter, the Gentiles should look at it as we receive something from that nation, we ought to in turn give them something from our nation. I wish, and I have thought about this at length in coming to these verses of Scripture, that we had an opportunity to go back and pay off some debts to those by which we have been greatly blessed and benefited. I have told you about princes that have died in the last 12 months. And you may wonder, why is there so much said about them? Because we have benefited from their labors. We have benefited from their efforts. It was our pleasure and privilege to send two ambassadors from this church to visit a funeral recently. It was our pleasure to make notice and to send a letter to a prince that died in Augusta, Georgia. Because we benefited. And I want us always to pay our debts so that we'll be free before the God of heaven. Oh, no man, anything. But we have been blessed. And we want to make sure that we take care of those that have blessed us in spiritual things. Those Gentiles had partook of the wonderful spiritual things of the Jews' religion. And now it was their turn to be able to send back. And you know, Paul would have preached this and explained this when he asked these churches to give the collection, and they were excited about doing it. So we move on to verse 28. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. This is what I have to do in Jerusalem, my brethren in Rome. I'm just across the sea in Sancria of Achaia, I could come straight across to you, but I've got to go all the way across the Mediterranean to Jerusalem for this noble benefit. Then I'll come to you in Rome and on my way to Spain, as he had explained back there in verse 24. When therefore I have performed this. When you hear a sermon like this, or you read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 in its commentary, or the Word of God speaks to you in some other passage, you may get convicted. You may get excited in the emotion of the moment and in hearing the Word of God pressed upon your ears and upon your heart and mind. You may get convicted. But I want to tell you something. It's not conviction that pays bills. And it's not conviction that pleases God. What pleases God? The performance of your conviction. 
And the Apostle Paul had to put emphasis upon this performance because he had gone to these churches and told them, I expect there to be a healthy contribution from this church for those poor saints in Jerusalem. And then when he left and sent word back to collect that money, he expected it to be there. Let me show you in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We always want to have a performance. The Bible warns against a person in need and us saying to them, be ye warmed and filled. Oh, it's so bad that your heat's been turned off because you're too weak and sick to go to work. Your heat's been turned off. Be ye warmed and filled. I hope everything works out well for you. Let me know if you have any needs. And then you walk away. The Bible addresses this in James chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 3 in both places just like that. And those passages tell us, don't be wishing anybody to do well. Pay. Perform. Give them something. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11. Now therefore perform the doing of it. This is to the church at Corinth. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will. See, they got excited when they heard the preaching. There was a readiness to will. They were willing to give. They were ready to give. So there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to the hath not. And so on and so forth. These two chapters are all about this gift. Two whole chapters in the Bible about this particular gift. But we want to have a performance. You know, there are a lot of churches that operate in a faith promise basis where the offering plate is passed around and you think to yourself, well, I'm going to make such and such this year and I'll give this percent. And they write it down on a piece of paper and the deacons sit down afterwards and they get all these pieces of paper together and they say, wow, we're going to take in $10 million this year. Let's build a $12 million building. Well, then the problem with faith promise giving like that is only $1.7 million comes in. That's common in churches. I'm going to tell you something, a, a secret about giving with the Lord. Let all your talking be understating and let all your giving be overperforming. Right. Otherwise, we're going to end up contradicting the Word of God again. And so here we are, we're giving, and, it's not, and the Lord's not blessing it. I want the Lord to love you. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord loves a performing giver. Faith promise. Wouldn't that be exciting? We could start planning the most luxurious building possible. If, I, if we were to get have a few rants about the need of a building and building a, a, a physical house worthy of the God of heaven, and I sent around pieces of paper to all of you, you'd start writing down your giving for the next five years. Well, I think that my income's going to be ratcheting up at about 20% a year, and I'm going to give 10% the first year and 12% the next year, and then 14%. Wow! We, we could do a strategic plan for the next five years? No. We operate on a cash basis. And we perform. Romans chapter 15, When therefore I have performed this, when I've got my hands on all this money and brought it in, then I'll be making my way over to Rome and have sealed to them this fruit. I love this little expression. The Apostle Paul, by getting all the way across the Mediterranean into the city of Jerusalem and performing the giving, the transfer of this money from Gentile churches to the poor saints in Jerusalem, the poor Jewish saints, he says that when he does that, it will be a sealing of their fruit. 
and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. The fruit is the fruit of the gospel in the Galatians' lives. And it's sealed when it is taken out of their hands and given to the worthy, God-pleasing end. You know, when we take money and give it to an end that doesn't please God, it's not really fruit. It doesn't matter that you gave it. But if you gave it to something that the Bible hasn't taught, then you're corrupting God's plan and way for things. You need to give it to the Lord. You need to give it cheerfully. You need to give it with performance. And you need to give it to an end that counts. And then it can be considered fruit. Look at Philippians 4.17, if you're quick in your Bibles, to see the apostle call their giving. Remember, where was the church at Philippi? Achaia or Macedonia? Macedonia. Philippians 4.17, the apostle said about them that even, verse 16, even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. They were to church 50 miles away, 70 miles away from Philippi and twice. The apostle takes note of it right here. When I was over there at Thessalonica, they weren't taking care of me like they should have been. I was in need, and you sent once and again, twice, to my need. Verse 17, not because I desire a gift. I love the apostle and how he deals with money. Not that I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. You see? Fruit that may abound to your account. And that's what Paul means back here in Romans chapter 15 and verse 28. And if you were to go read chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, and I was torn last night trying to figure out what chapters that you should read. Should it be Haggai 1 and 2? Or should it be 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? And you know I went with the former and not the latter. But the latter are all about this gift. And they're wonderful verses. And when you give, it's fruit to your account, and God is going to bless you. And that is described in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But not only is God going to bless you and provide all you need and more, those that receive the giving of the money, if they're a legitimate object for charity, they're going to be praising and thanking God on your behalf. That is a wonderful thing to have people somewhere in the world thanking God on our behalf. That's just wonderful. And it is taught that way in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. But this is fruit to their account. And so fruit is is the evidence of godliness. Fruit is a work that proves your election. It's fruit. It's the labor of love. It's the work of faith. It's the patience of hope. It's adding to your faith virtue, knowledge, godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. Those things make your calling and election sure. It's fruit. Oh, i got to give you this passage. It's still... 1 Timothy chapter 6, it still almost blows my mind. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Is there one thing certain that we believe? That by gold and silver you cannot buy your way into heaven? Does the Bible say that? That you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, received by vain tradition from your fathers? 1 Peter chapter 1, but with the precious blood of Christ? There's only one way into heaven. It's the precious blood of Christ. And it's not the precious metals, gold, silver, platinum, or palladium, or diamonds. It's a mineral. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul's instruction to Timothy on how he should preach to the rich in his churches. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded. That's understandable. The rich shouldn't be proud. Nor trust in uncertain riches. Nope, they shouldn't put their trust in money, but in God. 
but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good. The rich should be those of good works. That they be rich in good works. Ready to distribute, willing to communicate. They should have a ready mind to part with their assets when there's a legitimate need. If there's not a legitimate need, they can enjoy their greater wealth because God giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Even the Apostle Peter told Ananias when he came to him in Acts chapter 5, while you had that land, it was in your power. There was no necessity for Ananias to give that. I just got a question in the last week or two, questions about giving, the the person was basically wondering if Christianity is equivalent to communism. And no, it isn't. While that land was owned by Ananias, it was in his power and he could have kept it and there would have been no fault before God. It's that he sold it, only gave part of the proceeds to the apostles and said that he had given the whole proceeds. And see, the rich right here aren't told to get rid of their riches. They're told to enjoy their riches. That God richly giveth them to enjoy. We don't believe from every man according to his ability and to every man according to his need based on the communistic definition of that. And so it takes away all incentive. The Bible is a capitalistic book. Everything in the Bible is written about the incentive for men to go out and work harder. The diligent are always getting richer and the slothful are always getting poorer because the diligent are never looking out for the slothful and nor are they ever transferring assets to the slothful. Here's what gets me about this passage. We know that we are not saved by silver and gold. We know we're saved with the precious blood of Christ. And yet it says, verse 19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Do you mean by financial giving I can build a foundation for eternal life when I meet Jesus Christ? Yes. Say, How can that be? Here's how it can be. People love money too much. And when they give money away to the poor in the name of Jesus, it proves something drastic has happened to them. It's the evidence of eternal life. They can lay up and store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. I've been over these passages before. You all know, Matthew chapter 25, that Jesus Christ is going to sit in the last day and all nations are going to be gathered before Him. He's going to put His sheep on the right hand, goats on the left hand, and the difference is eternal life. And what makes the difference in that passage, verses 31 through 46, this group over here fed them, clothed them, and visited Him. And they're going to say, Lord, when do we ever do that to You? And he's going to say to them, whenever you did it to the least of these, my brethren. Notice, in the great day of judgment, it's those good works are the evidence of eternal life. Now see, a Catholic, if I was a Catholic priest and I knew that passage in the Bible, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, I'd fill the box today. Because I would teach that you get into heaven by your giving. But your assurance of getting into heaven is by your giving. Right. That's the evidence because it shows the character of the people God has truly saved because He changes their hearts. They don't want their money. They just want enough to get by and be comfortable and to give to the Lord's work, to give to the poor saints that the Lord might show us. Oh Lord, thank You. Romans chapter 15, verse 28. It's called a fruit here and Paul was going to seal it to those Gentiles over there in Macedonia and Achaia. Then he would come by the Romans into Spain. Verse 29. And I am sure that. I love his confidence. I love the the confidence of the Apostle Paul. It wasn't pride. 
It's because the Lord had blessed him so abundantly in other fields of endeavor. He knew the Holy Spirit was with him. He knew Jesus Christ stood beside him. And I am sure that when I come unto you, and these are wonderful words of of preaching the gospel, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Notice those prepositions, in, of, of, and of. I shall come in the fullness. There will be no shortage on my part. I have everything that you in Rome would ever want to get spiritually. I will come in the fullness of the blessing, and it is, without controversy, great is the blessing of godliness conveyed by the gospel of the gospel. And the word gospel, that old English word, means good spell or good news, glad tidings that a man gets to carry into another nation and take to the believing saints in Rome and preach to them. Look back at Romans chapter 1 and see what Paul wanted to do when he got to Rome. Romans chapter 1. He's already been over this. He knew that a church in the capital of the empire would want to know why he hadn't visited them. And so he says in verse 10, making request, he's been praying about it. If by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Notice the will of God here. We'll need it when we get back to Romans 15. For I long to see you. Oh, that'd be comforting. That I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Verse 15, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Notice, a preacher of the gospel gets to come with the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ when he visits people. The Apostle Paul could go into the church at Rome and they could give him a space of time to speak and he would be able to tell them all the precious things of the gospel of Christ that they had never heard. Or he could present the ones that they had heard and do it better. Because he was the apostle to the Gentiles and God had held him back in no gift. Do you appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ? We are getting some of it right now. You might look at these verses and say, well, these aren't as good as Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And I'll agree. These aren't as good as Romans chapter 5. I'd probably agree. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But these words here that we are covering about cheerful giving and about the performance of giving and about the fact that we Gentiles owe a debt to those that have brought the gospel to us, all these things are points and parts of the gospel of Christ as well. But the point that the Apostle Paul is speaking about here is that Sugar text verse that I love so much. 1 Timothy 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Those are wonderful things. And the Apostle Paul could have filled in the details. Oh, and you say, I wish I had the details. We do. We do all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Everything we need is in writing right here. Do you appreciate it? Or is hearing, I don't blame you for disliking my voice. 
I don't blame you for disliking my mannerisms, my looks, and everything about me. But what comes out of Balaam's transportation is the glory of the gospel of Christ. And we should love it. It's the gospel. The gospel has been carried by men like we heard about this morning. Did you hear about that man dipping himself in a barrel of pitch and then standing of his own volition at a post while he's burned to death? Men brought you the gospel. And the gospel went west. Paul went west. And west. He headed west. He tried to go north. No, the Holy Spirit said. Acts chapter 16. He tried to go south. No, the Holy Spirit said in Acts 16. So he went west. Because a man of Macedonia said, Come over. Come over where? Come west and help us. And so he went to Macedonia. Then he went west to Illyricum. And now he's going to go west to Rome. And he's saying, when I'm done in Rome, I'm going to go west to Spain. And the gospel came into the British Isles. And whole churches planted themselves in the North American continent by transplanting from Wales to America. They're called Welsh Track Baptist Churches in Pennsylvania, Delaware, and over here on the Petey River in South Carolina, the second Baptist church in the South. They spoke Welsh. Calvinistic Baptists, sober, God-fearing, Christ-loving, simplistic living, holy men. The gospel. Do you appreciate it? Do you love it? It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll fill this latter house with greater glory than the former house. What can the glory be greater than Solomon had? 120,000 sheep were offered. Solomon offered 120,000 sheep. Can you imagine that fire? He offered 22,000 oxen. Have you ever been to a full-blown ox roast? That's a pretty big chunk of meat. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. The fire, they did, what do you, how do you do? You flick your bick? You think you're going to flick your bick and burn up 120,000 sheep? God dropped fire down from heaven, sucked up that offering. But you know what we have right here without controversy? That was the old covenant. It was like, it was like the dust of a dirty rug. God shook the heavens and the earth and it all floated away and we have a kingdom which cannot be moved. I hope you love the gospel. This verse right here, I'm the last thing that anybody would ever want to meet. I'm the last one anybody would ever want to hear. But I'll tell you, God's called me to tell you about the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and to try to read in the book of God distinctly and give the sense and cause you to understand the reading. And it's a wonderful thing. And I'm going to tell you about another wonderful opportunity that we have to preach the gospel on the other side of the world when we come back after our break. I am sure that. I love his confidence. You know, when you're walking with the Lord, have you ever been sure like this? Have you been sure that you knew the Holy Spirit was with you? That God loved you? That if you were to die right then, you'd be in the presence of the Lord? I am sure that. When I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. How long could I go on this verse right here by itself? Well, I would want to talk to you about the gospel and its content. Content. I would want to tell you about the blessing of the gospel and its power and benefits. I would want to tell you about the blessing of the gospel and its glorious promises. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Exceeding great and precious promises. Amen. There's so much to be said, but we'll go on to verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, the apostles begging, the saints at Rome, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, Don't do it for me. Do it for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. I'm just His servant. If you love Christ, pray for me. And pray for the saints in Jerusalem that they'll accept this offering I'm bringing. 
That's his appeal. It's just wonderful. There's so much wisdom here. We are nothing. He is everything. He must increase. We must decrease. So if you need motivation, the Apostle Paul used this often. Do you ever remember Philippians chapter 2? If there be any fellowship of the Spirit. If, if, if four times in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, so that he could motivate you to give him verse 2 in Philippians. If God's been good to you, then you should be good enough to obey that God and give him what he seeks from our lives. And he's doing that right here. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, since this is all about the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it's money, even though it's Jews, even though it's me traveling, it's money, it's saints, it's ministering, it's buying food, it's putting stuff in the refrigerator. It's for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. And for the love of the Spirit. The Spirit is not shown in the New Testament to be the lover of our souls, nor are we ever told in any place in the New Testament to love the Spirit. It's the love that the Spirit works in the souls of God's children. For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the love the Spirit has put in your souls, pray for me and pray for those saints in Jerusalem, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Notice here that praying is called striving. It's like fighting. It's like wrestling. I have told you this before. The greatest example of prayer, one of the greatest examples of prayer is Jacob wrestling with the angel, wrestling with God, wrestling with a man. All three are true because all three are said in the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 32, he wrestled all night. And the sun started to come up in the east. And God said to Jacob, listen, day's coming on. I've been here hid with you in the dark wrestling. I need to leave you. I will not let you go until you bless me. And God blessed Jacob. It's a wonderful example of prayer, but it's striving. If you can remember back to when you were in school or college or any other time when you were wrestling, I mean intense wrestling, where someone was supposed to win and you weren't just goofing around. Intense wrestling is the most energetic, energy-sapping, difficult effort that there is. It's on every joint, every muscle, every accessory muscle is called into play. You're twisted a shape. Your muscles are being put against their leverage by the other opposing wrestler because he's trying to take away your leverage. And so you're fighting against a loss of... It's just incredible. But it's wrestling. And it's what the Bible uses. And here it's using striving. If you have a need in your life... If you want to accomplish great things for the Lord, we want to pray with fervency and we want to continue and be persistent and we want to be importunate. Importunity is a word that we don't use anymore and it means to nearly be obnoxious or to be obnoxious in the pursuit of something until a person gives it to you in order to get you off their back. Twice that's taught by the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 11 and in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 11 and 18, the event is given of you being in bed with your children. Your family has gone to bed for the night and a neighbor needs something out of your cupboard. And he comes to the door, but because you're comfortable, you're not going to get up and give it to him because it's just not important enough for you to interrupt your night. Jesus is telling this. But because that neighbor will not go back home, because he just stands there and keeps pounding on the door, eventually you get up. And you go give him what he needs. And Jesus said that is how God responds to prayer. You just keep banging on that door. Then in Luke chapter 18, it's the story of the unjust judge. There was an unjust judge that didn't fear God or man. And there was a widow that was being taken advantage of. And she left a message on this unjust judge's answering machine. 
And he just ignored it. And he ignored the second one, the fourth one, the tenth one. But then because she was going to drive him crazy, Jesus said, He said, I will avenge this woman of her adversaries. And Jesus said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. That is just like the God of heaven. And so you've got to strive in praying, brethren. There's lessons here in these verses, though they may not seem as obvious as the previous 14 chapters of this epistle. I beg you, brethren, I beseech you for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me. I'll be praying like this. You join me in your prayers to God for me. Here's his two prayer requests. Verse 31, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea. There's a lot of people that don't like me in Judea. They have heard I was a rising star in the Jews' religion. I was taught the feet of Gamaliel. I came behind no man in the learning of the Jews. They have heard that I've been spending my life preaching Jehovah's religion to the Gentiles. They don't like me. They're going to try to kill me. So pray that I'll be delivered from them. Notice he doesn't say pray that they'll be delivered to me, that I can get them saved. He says, deliver me from them too. And that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints. This is hard to swallow, but I already presented this point earlier, that if you were a Jew and you had a sense of nationalistic pride that you were God's chosen people, and God had always taken care of you, to have these Gentile goyim, these Gentile dogs or cattle, sending you money, you can take that right back where you got that from, Paul. First reason. And the second reason, who brought the money to them? The man they disliked the most. The Apostle Paul. Even in the church of Jerusalem, Paul was not well loved. Because he was spending his time, and the rumors that circulated were that he was preaching against this holy place, and he was preaching against the law of Moses. And so we have this verse. Those are the two prayer requests. And brethren, we always have prayer requests. And I hope that you can see that in the first three weeks of this year, that I've brought prayer requests to your mind that you may not have thought of before. We're not going to pray for cars and bodily health and money, and jobs, and all that stuff all the time. We want to pray for more important things. Spiritual things are always more important than the physical things. And so, I hope that I've shown you an example, and I hope that we can keep it up in this church of spending more time praying for spiritual needs like this right here. So that the preacher of the gospel will be protected in Jerusalem, and so that the saints in that church can be blessed by the Gentile gift. Verse 32, And if the Lord were to grant us these two things, that I may come unto you with joy... By the will of God. If I don't have to go to prison in Jerusalem, if I can be delivered, if they'll all be excited about receiving the gift of the Gentiles, then I can come and see you joyfully. Now, what actually happened? Did God hear their prayer? Just be very careful when you answer that. Did God hear their prayers? Yes, God heard their prayers. God hears every prayer of the righteous. Did God answer their prayers the way they expected them to be answered? No. Was Paul captured by those that didn't believe in Jerusalem? Yes. Did he spend several years in prison? Yes. Did he have a difficult transfer in a prison ship across the Mediterranean? Yes. Did he eventually get there? Yes. Was Paul still joyful? Always. It was the will of God that he would get to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ before Festus, Felix, and Agrippa before he ever made it to Rome. Connect the dots. God had other work for Paul to do with the Roman government in Caesarea and in Jerusalem. 
and may with you be refreshed. He said that he could be encouraged by the mutual faith, both of you and me, in Romans chapter 1. And here he's saying, I'll be refreshed when I see you, brethren. And you know what the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 28? That ship came around the boot of Italy, landed. Paul got off and started making his way up the boot of Italy to Rome. And when the brethren heard that the ship had landed, they chose select brethren and sent them south in the boot of Italy to a place called Appiaphorum, the three taverns. And there they met Paul, whom when Paul saw, whom? These brethren from the church at Rome. When Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. Because what was Paul going into Rome for? He had appealed to Caesar, and he was going to stand before Nero Caesar. And he took courage that he had brethren. Then he went to work. He got into Rome, rented himself a house, and preached all that came to him for a couple of years. Verse 33, now the God of peace. In this place I will make peace. Haggai 2, verse 9. For my companion's sake, I will say, Peace be within thy walls. Legal peace, practical peace, he's the God of peace. Mm -hmm. Look in this chapter, verse 5. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another. So in this one chapter, this is how Christians bless each other. They appeal to the name of God and his attributes. The God of peace, the God of hope, the God of patience and consolation. Because what did this church need? They needed to get over their fighting. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded. Verse 13, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and hope in believing. And now the last verse, now the God of peace. His final remark is still appealing to the thing that was necessary in the church at Rome for them to be at peace with each other. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And chapter 16 is a P.S., Large, but it's a P.S. Because he closes out here, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. But that is not Paul's token. Paul has a particular signature in every one of his epistles, and that is found in verse 24 of chapter 16. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Second Thessalonians chapter 3 tells us that Paul always signs his epistle, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. There it is, verse 24. Even when he closed out, then he couldn't quite stop. He had to bless the Most High God in verses 25 through 27. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. And then he said amen again. Because the Apostle Paul loved blessing the Most High God, giving blessings in the name of Jesus Christ. And he also wanted to encourage, commend, and praise a number of saints. And it shows us that that belongs in the church of God to give commendations where they are due. And I hope that uh, you have understood the preaching today and that in these nine verses you can have heard lessons that are for your profit because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. He wants a performing one. He wants us striving in prayers. And if we strive in prayers, we can do more good than any other effort you ever make. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.